Christmas grief. That's what we're going to discuss today. Joseph is the second in command to the entire Egyptian empire, and yet here is a guy who is deeply in touch with his grief, his regrets, his difficulty, and he's not, he's not afraid. He's courageous enough to engage his emotions, no matter how difficult they are. As you look in the uh, chapters we've been studying together, over and over again, you see a guy who is deeply in touch with his emotions. Uh, chapter 42, he turned away from them, having seen his brothers for the first time in a long time, and he wept. Chapter 43, he saw his brother and yearned to see him, and again, he wept. He wept so loud, in fact, a cha- couple chapters later, the Egyptians and the Pharaoh heard him expressing his grief. Same chapter, he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck as these two brothers had been reunited. He kissed all his brothers and wept over them to have their relationships reconciled and restored. Genesis 46, so Joseph went up to Goshen to meet his father, hadn't seen his father in over 20 years, and he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. In chapter 50, the chapter we're in today, Joseph fell on his father's face. His father's now passed away and wept over him, kissed him. His brothers are so scared. Hey, remember, dad said, forgive us. His dying wish was to forgive us. And Joseph said, I forgave you a long time ago. Well, are you sure you did? Are you sure now dad's dead? You're, you're not going to take vengeance upon us? Please forgive the trespasses of your servants, the God of your father. And again, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Wept they didn't believe him. Whether they, they still thought he had the character of one who was vengeance, had vengeance. There's something really powerful that goes on because oftentimes I want you to imagine our lives are like a, a jug, a cracked jug. And many times when God pours his water upon us, his healing water, his cleansing water, his, his forgiving water, he can soak into the cracks in our life, the difficulties, the hurts and the pains. But often, instead of allowing God to soak into our difficulties by admitting that we're, we're hurting, admitting we're in pain, we sort of pull out the caulk gun. We engage in what I will call a Christian stoicism. I'm not hurting. Fill it up. Oh, I'm doing fine. Thank you very much. We get that British stiff upper lip and we say, I'm fine. Thank you very much. I haven't had an emotion in years. And we think that being a Christian is somehow connected with denial of emotions, denial of pain. And yet you see those people in the Bible who are most in touch with God are those who allow themselves to hurt, tell God where they're at, and God begins to soak in to the cracks and hurts and crevices of their life. And the principle we're going to look at today is just that. God will not heal what we will not feel. It's not that he can't, but for whatever reason, he chooses to heal when we choose to feel. And there's lots of different stages or types of grief. For some of us, we grieve relationships this year that are not what we hope they would be. We hope our marriage would be stronger this year. We hope that that prodigal son or daughter would have come home this year. And so we're grieving this year some kind of relationship that's not what we hoped it would be. Some of us are grieving coming in December, looking back and saying, this is the year I thought I would have a grandson or daughter. This is the year we hoped we would have adopted. This is the year we hoped we would have had a child. This is the year we hoped our kids would have been married, or I hoped I would have been married by now. And those grieves of what haven't happened are going on beneath the surface. That's the kind of grief you're holding. For some of us, someone's missing. It's literal grief. This is your first Thanksgiving. This will be your first Christmas without grandma, without an aunt, without a a friend who you love so dearly. And so grief is just beneath the surface as you walked in today. 
for some of us, we grieve change. We grieve the fact that this is the first year with you're struggling with the reality of divorce. For, for many of us, the grief we'll experience this year will be the idea of the change. We're getting older and we can't do the things we used to do. And so we're grieving the change that happened in our life. We're going to look at the stages of Joseph's grief in hopes of having a road map to begin to work through the different emotions that we have, whatever level or type of grief that we have, that God would, we'd have an intimacy and closeness with God as we begin to tell him what we feel and he can connect with us and bring some healing into our lives. The first stage we see of Joseph's grief is that he overcomes denial. Whenever you come face to face with grief, oh, I don't need to deal with that. I don't need to handle it. I'm fine. Thank you very much. Pull out the cock gun. But Joseph fell on his father's face, wept over him and kissed him. He fully engages in his grief. He doesn't deny it. In fact, Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis, will die. And in chapter one of Joshua, God will come to his people and tell them how to deal with Moses' death. And again, look at the words he says. The death of Moses, God comes to Joshua and says, and here's his big word, his big statement up front is, Moses, my servant, is dead. Talk about the obvious, right? I mean, imagine me coming to a funeral, and me standing at a funeral and saying, hey, dearly beloved, here is John Smith with us today, and I just want to let you know that John Smith is dead. But there's something in the human psyche that denies reality. We deny pain. We deny reality. And so one of the first stages is denial. And so God comes and says, no, the Christian worldview allows you to deal with pain. It allows you to come face to face with hurting, difficult things. In fact, Jesus says it this way. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, this is an if-then promise, meaning you don't get the comfort, comfort unless you mourn. But if you mourn, if you allow yourself to feel, then you get the comfort, the feel the healing that comes from God. And these are directly connected, this idea that we, we don't deny the pain, we don't deny the difficult, we embrace it. And the Christian worldview on death is so powerful. There's four different, all the philosophies and religions in the world can be summarized in these four ways of thinking about death. The first one is that you rot to death. This is the view of naturalism or atheism. When you're dead, you're dead. You're gone. You rot to death. You're not there anymore. Nobody's looking at you. They're, they're gone. They're worm food. Hopeless worldview. Then there's the worldview of you don't rot to death, you reincarnate into energy. Lots of problems. The reason Christianity rejects this for so many reasons, but let me just give you a couple. If you are just energy deposited into a container, it has profound implications on identity, on sexuality, because you are not a man or a woman, you're just energy that happens to be contained in this container right now. Your personality isn't really your personality. It just happens to be within this container. You used to be a cow, you used to be a mosquito, you used to be a woman, you used to be a man. But the Christian worldview is so unique. You are an individual created eternal by God. That those you have lost are still your grandma and grandpa. They're still your brother and sister. They still are who they always were. They're not some energy that's been scrambled up and thrown into something else. The personality, the individuality of the Christian worldview is powerful in realizing that we are individuals made unique by God. The third worldview was held by the Egyptians. When you die, you remain the same. As archaeologists have explored different tombs, they would find that buried with the pharaohs would be their medicines and their canes because you go into the next life with the same ailments and pains as this life. What a bummer that is. But that's a worldview. And this is why the Christian world offers so much hope 
Paul will tell us that when you go through grief, rub the hope of the gospel into your grief. Grieve, mourn, but don't mourn like those who have no hope. No, no, rub the hope of the gospel into your grief. Because those who have died or gasping for air or dealing with cancer will not have cancer anymore because they, the fourth few, they resurrect to life. Not cast for the friendly ghost, not their spirits in heaven. The Christian worldview is so radical that people, even Christians, miss it. Real bodies in a real place called heaven. Real bodies, real minds, restored minds, no more Alzheimer's, no more sickness, no more not recognizing your brother or your sister, your son or your daughter, no more cancer, no more pain, no more ailments. This is why we as Christians don't deny the truth of the difficulty of of grief and pain. We have the hope that can come face to face with that pain through what Jesus has done. We overcome denial. The second thing Joseph does is he allows himself to hurt. He falls on his father's face and wept over him. Now, you don't need to be a personality that you're not. If you're not a very emotional person, I'm not saying you need to pretend to be something, but whatever is your expression to get in touch with the fact that it's okay to grieve and to hurt and to be mad and to be angry and to pound your fist on God's chest and be real with him. C.S. Lewis is the master apologist. He wrote a book called The Problem of Pain, where he describes philosophically why the Christian worldview on pain is the only one that explains the hope of living in a broken world. However, years later, after he wrote the philosophical answer to pain, his wife died. And now it went from a philosophical problem to a personal problem. He writes in his book, A Grief Observed, how he felt, how he journaled, how he wrestled with God. He said, no one ever told me that grief felt so much like fear. I'm afraid, but the sensation... I'm not afraid, but the sensation is a lot like being afraid. The same fluttering in your stomach, the same restlessness, the yawning. I keep on swallowing. And other times it feels mildly like being drunk or concussed. There's sort of an invisible blanket between the world and me. I almost prefer the moments of agony. They are at least clean and honest. But the bathe of self-pity, the wallow, the loathsome, sticky, sweet pleasure of indulging in my grief... It disgusts me. Well, even while I'm doing it, it leads me to misrepresent my wife herself. Give that mood its head, and in a few minutes I shall have substituted the real woman for a mere doll that I blubber over. Thank God the memory of her is still too strong, but will it always be too strong? To get me away from it. And no one ever told me the laziness of grief. Except at my job where the machine seems to run on as usual, I loathe the slightest effort. Not only writing, but even reading a letter is too much, even shaving. What does it matter whether my cheek is rough or smooth if she's gone? And I go to God when I'm desperate. When all other help is vain, and what do I find? A door slammed in my face. The sound of a bolting and double bolting of the door. And after that, silence. Now this is a guy who wrote the book on mere Christianity. But in his grief, he said, boy, if God's big enough, he can be honest and I can tell him what I feel. And God, I don't feel like you're here for me right now. I don't know how to process this. And it was in his honesty of emotion, his honesty of connecting with God, that God met with him. He allowed himself to weep and to hurt and to grieve. And that's our third stage. We allow ourselves to grieve. Look what Joseph did. Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. Now, keep in mind, the Egyptians had a totally different philosophy of the death. Their whole life they prepared for death. 
So Joseph doesn't buy into their religion. He doesn't buy into their philosophy. But he does say there's a proper way. What they've, what they've stumbled upon, those Egyptians, is embalming and grieving and going through a process of grief is healthy. So he engages in the strategy, even though he doesn't engage in the philosophy. And he allows the physicians to embalm them. And the Egyptians had worked for years to, to specifically get this embalming process right. So the Egyptians embalm Israel, Jacob, Forty days were required to embalm someone in those days. For such were the days required for those embalmed. Now look at this. The Egyptians who don't believe in his God. The Egyptians who have like hundreds of gods. The Egyptians who have been impacted by Joseph and are grieving with him who is grieving over his dad. The Egyptians grieved with Joseph for 70 days. 70 days. Deuteronomy, the last chapter of Deuteronomy says that when Moses died, God set aside 30 days for them to mourn. 30 days. Now, as Americans, we don't have a way to deal with our grief. Most of us didn't grow up with a, a healthy sense of how to deal with our emotions. There's no right or wrong way. For Deuteronomy, it was 30 days. For the Egyptians, it was 70. There's a set time to deal with and work through your emotions. Most of us are like, well, I think I went to the wake and I got a little emotional there and whew, back to work. There's no perfect way to do it, but to get in touch with whatever is your grieving and difficulty is so important. And if... The Egyptians embalmed Jacob. It's weird to think that Jacob, Israel, was in a sarcophagus, mummified, embalmed. Ever thought about the Egyptian sarcophagus? This is a sarcophagus uh, from about 2000 to 3000 B.C., about around that time, that Jacob's body would be placed in. He's going to be carried back to Canaan as part of the mourning process and the processional. So he continues this grieving process. When the days of mourning were past, the 70 days... Joseph spoke to Pharaoh and said, hey, I made a promise to my dad that I'd take him back to Canaan. Will you let me do it? And he says, yes, do go up and, and bury your father and do as you swore to him. And Joseph went up to bury his father and he went up with all the servants of Pharaoh. Look, look at the community that grieves with him. All the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of the house, all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as well as his own family goes up. All of Joseph's family, his brothers, his father's house. They did leave the little ones back home. They left their flocks and their herds, but everyone else left in the land of Goshen. And they went up with both chariots and horsemen. And it was a great gathering as they carried Jacob's body together, grieving together on their way back. They came to the threshing floor of Etad, which is beyond the Jordan. And they mourned there. And look what it says. They've already mourned for 70 days. This is like stage two. Here now with his family and friends, there is a great and very solemn lamentation. Deep mourning together as a family. And then, having mourned 70 days in Egypt, another great solemn time with his family, he then personally takes seven days of mourning just for himself as he thinks about his father. This is a man who's been very intentional about his grief. I got a chance a few, uh, about a month ago, to go see my daughter performing in the play Miracle Worker by Helen Keller. About Helen Keller. And I, I, I'd used Helen Keller in sermon illustrations before. I had heard the story how Annie had taught her to communicate, eventually came to know Christ. But I've never seen the play. And like most high school musicals, you go expecting to be entertained, you go expecting the technical difficulties not to be too bad, and it was well executed. But you never really go to be moved, right? You never go to a high school musical to be moved. I, I don't. And I'm sitting there, yeah, maybe you guys are, have tender hearts than I do. Um, so I'm sitting in this musical and suddenly I'm in the story. 
I went there the, the first night to watch my daughter. Then my wife and I came together the next day. And I find myself in tears watching this thing as these parents are dealing with a special needs child and they're angry at one moment and they're frustrated another moment and they don't know what to do. And Annie comes in and she's frustrating trying to teach this child who doesn't want to communicate or help how to communicate. And I just found myself in that moment grieving. All kinds of things, actually. I found myself grieving. Boy, why didn't I get speech communication for him quicker? It's going so well now. Why did I wait so long? I found myself grieving in that moment the past, you know. What, what, what could I have done? What should I have done? I found myself in the moment going, oh, that's me. I've been there. I've been frustrated. Oh, I've been angry. Oh, that was us last week. I found myself grieving the future. What does it mean to be a father to a special needs son when he's a teenager, when he's 20? Will he ever have someone who loves him? Will he ever have his own job? And God met with me right there in the high school musical in my grief, in my questions, in my wanderings, in my wonderings. And we need a process, whatever it is for you, to get in touch with, with what it is you're grieving or wrestling with. And Joseph did that. But then there's another stage he moves from, not just the hurt, not just overcoming denial, not just allowing himself to grieve, but he allowed himself then to move on, strike that, to move forward. See, most people say, hey, I know you're grieving, you've got to move on. And you're like, I don't want to move on. I miss him. I miss her. I don't want to forget about that. The idea of moving on almost seems sacrilegious in some way. So don't think about moving on. Think about moving forward. How do I now, with this grief, find God to be more dependable, more present in the midst of my grief than he was before? How do I take a step forward? Notice what Joseph does. When the days of mourning were past, and look at that, there comes a time that you need to move forward. Some of us don't have a process, so we don't ever either get engaged with our emotions or we're so engaged with our emotions that we're just stuck there for weeks, months, years. Some of us stuck in grief for, de- for decades because they don't know how to move forward because they're scared of moving on. But there comes a time when the days of mourning are past, when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, now look at this, they saw the deep mourning that had occurred, the deep expression of emotion that had occurred with Joseph and his family at the threshing floor of Atad, and they called the place the deep mourning of the Egyptian place, which is called Abel Mizram. Man, those people know how to mourn. And those people know how to get real with God. Those people know how to be authentic. I mean, when people look at our life, whatever your personality is, they say, man, they're so real. You know what's attractive to people? Not people who have their life all together. Not people who do it all right. People who are real. And their connection with God is real. And these folks are looking at the impact Joseph has had on the Egyptians. And says, wow, man, that was real. So his sons did for him just as he commanded them. His sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Maspala, before Mamre, which Abraham bought in the field from Ephron the Hittite as property for a burial place. And look at this. And after the days of mourning are past, he buried his father. Joseph returned to Egypt. You could stay and remember and connect with and mourn someone you love for weeks, months, days, years. Joseph could have been there for a hundred years remembering the impact his father had had on him. But there comes a time you move forward and he says, I've got to go back to work. I've got to return to Egypt. That brings fear. That brings anxiety. But he says, God is still with me in a world without my dad. God is still with me in a world where the things I hoped would have happened last year didn't happen. 
And so I'm in my grief, but in my grief, God's going to comfort me and he's going to give me what I need to sustain me in the new phase as I move forward, as I return to Egypt, as I go back to work, as I re-enter life in this new reality. That's what it looks like to move forward. And again, that's different for everybody too. About a month ago, I was on Facebook and a friend of mine, Cindy Weiniger, um, had posted some things that grabbed my attention. So I gave her a call. She had a son, a special needs son, many of you may know. And her son was not supposed to live beyond five because of the special needs and all the machines he was hooked up to. Well, he made it. He made it to his third birthday and his fourth birthday and his fifth birthday. And they celebrated. He made it to his sixth birthday. He made it to his seventh birthday. But he won't make it to his eighth. He died just a few months ago at seven. So I called her up and I did the obligatory, the one line we all know what to say. I'm sorry for your loss. And I sort of pushed myself to address the elephant in the room and said, but well, how are you feeling? Uh, I mean, you've got to be feeling sad, but I would imagine there's some relief of not having all that wear and tear, minute-by-minute care, and there's got to be guilt feeling that, right? I mean, it's, uh, how are you doing? What kind of emotions do you have? And so we began to talk, and she began to share. And as she began to share, I said, I understand you got yourself a new tattoo. Well, actually, her only tattoo to my knowledge. <laughs> and I said, I saw on Facebook you posted a picture that you, you got your son's name tattooed on your arm. Tell me about that. She said, well, after he died, the, the machines that keep him alive are so in demand that they were just taken out of his room within 24 hours. It was almost like you walk into his room and he's just totally gone. There's not even much results or remnants of him. So I want to make something to mark so I could remember him, so I could grieve through the process. So I put his name on my arm as a way of remembering. And he was cremated. And he was placed in an urn. And, and we took the urn and we have it on the fireplace in our in our living room right now. So every time we go in the living room, it's a, pro, it's a process we're going through mourning our son. So sometimes I will find one of his little toys, like his little monkey, I'll take that little monkey and I'll walk up to the fireplace and I'll just set it next to the urn. Sometimes when I get there, my husband has placed a toy on the other side. And I'm like, oh my goodness. And these are just some of the ways she's using to move forward. I said, what's sort of the motivation to be able to do this? She said, well, I'm hoping that when I meet my son again, Daniel, he'll say, Mom, I'm proud of you. I'm proud that you didn't wallow. You found a way to move forward in the midst of your grief. And I want my son to say to me one day, Mom, I'm proud of you. It's not easy to move forward. It takes a lot of courage and grief to do it. I remember when I was in college, part of my English class was required to read this book, Severe Mercy. It's by Sheldon. Uh, how do you say his last name? Vanachan. He was an agnostic, an atheist didn't believe in God. He started writing back and forth to C.S. Lewis, who began to write him. So this, this book is a combination of his letters as a skeptic and C.S. Lewis's writings back. And one of the things he really struggled with is that his wife died, and he loved his wife. Oh, Sheldon had this incredible relationship with his wife, and, and he just was so angry that God would allow her to, to die. And as he's wrestling with this, he's wondering the old age-old question, is it better to have loved than lost or never to have loved at all? And I love the words he writes, especially sort of a typical, more like us men, Emotion, less emotional men. He says this, I had been wont to despise emotions. Girls were weak. Emotions and tears were weakness. But this morning I was thinking that being a great brain in a tower, nothing but brain wouldn't be much fun. No excitement, no dog to love, no joy in the blue sky, no feelings at all. But feelings are emotions. I was suddenly overwhelmed by the revelation that what makes life worth living is precisely the emotions 
Maybe girls, with their tears and laughter, were getting more out of life. Shattering. If there were a choice between, on the one hand, the heights and the depths, and on the other hand, some sort of safe, cautious middle way, I, for one, choose the heights and the depths. Since the years have gone by, I had had the love. I had had, well, I was having all the sorrow there was. And yet the joy was worth the pain. Even now, I reaffirm that long past choice. I was reading this book. As he discussed the grief he had of losing his wife, I hadn't thought about my grandfather in seven years. He died when I was in sixth grade. I'm sitting in my dorm room reading this obligatory college book, and I'm finding myself moved. I'm finding myself entering to his grief and to his emotions, and I'm reminded of my own. And all of a sudden, Grandpa Eltravogue was right there, and I was right back in that funeral home in sixth grade, seeing this body of this man I loved. I'd always pretend to cough, <coughs> so he'd pull out those cherry Ludwig cough drops and hand them to me. <laughs> I locked the door because I didn't want my roommate to come in and find out I was, whatever I was doing, I guess grieving is what I'd say at the time. And God met me in my dorm room as I began to let out emotions I didn't know I had. I, I would have said, I didn't know I needed healing. I would have said, I haven't thought about Grandpa in years. But God used that book as a process to begin to bring healing to me in a way I didn't even know I needed. God began to heal as I began to feel that moment of grief in college. So I'm going to invite Natalie to come up because I think the takeaway for us is this. This doesn't come naturally for us as Americans. It doesn't come naturally for us as men often. It certainly doesn't come naturally for us as as human beings. I think we need to make a plan to feel so God can plan to heal. And that plan is going to be different for you. It's going to be different from you based on your personality, your emotions, but we need a plan. For some of us, it might be journaling. Why is it I get angry? What is it I'm upset about? What is it that's going on? And maybe journaling would help you get in touch. Like C.S. Lewis did in a brief observe. Maybe you're like, you know, I'm not in touch with my emotions. That wouldn't work. So maybe for you, it's reading a book, reading a grief observed, or, or, or reading the book Severe Mercy. And as you encounter somebody else's grief, it gives voice to the things that you might be feeling. Maybe that's your plan. Maybe your plan is to get alongside somebody who's a friend of yours and say, you know, help me. I, I'm realizing that, that, that this thing I'm disappointed in is affecting me more than I realize. Could you sort of push me to talk or ask me some questions to help me figure that out? Or maybe it's a counselor. But make a plan to feel so God can plan to heal. You see, Jesus is the ultimate one who experienced loss. He lost heaven to come to earth. He lost disciples who betrayed him. He lost a, a cousin who got beheaded in a terrible injustice. He lost it all. He was encountered with grief. He came face to face with Lazarus and he, and he wept. Even though he was going to resurrect him a few days later, he still wept. He entered into his grief. And here's what I know. Most of us aren't going to make a plan. We're going to go, good sermon, and then we're going to walk off. Christmas is on. So I want to give you just a few minutes to right now connect with God. To say, God, open my heart to any cracks I might have that I don't know about. Open my heart to any areas of disappointment or anger or sadness or, or, or whatever I'm wrestling with this, this holiday season. So listen to the words. Let the music wash over you. You can sing if you want. You can close your eyes if you want. Let's have a spirit of prayer. So say, God, open my eyes to the areas you want to bring healing into my heart. Let's listen together. You're going to bow your heads with me. I want to lead you through an exercise on how to open your heart. I'm going to give you some different emotions that you might want to just say, God, that's where I'm at. 
And as I say one, maybe it strikes a chord to God, that's where I'm at right now. Maybe you want to elaborate with God. Maybe you want to, God wants to open your hearts to worry. You're worried about next year. You're worried about next week. Maybe you're angry. You never knew that God was big enough to be angry at. You say, God, I'm mad. Maybe you want to tell him you're disappointed. Maybe you're sad. Maybe you just miss somebody. You say, God, I just miss them. Whatever it is, just tell God as best you can what you're feeling this morning. Having expressed our feelings, maybe you want to then articulate to God as best you can what you'd like Him to heal. Maybe it's just a word. God, I, I need wisdom. God, I need courage. God, I need comfort. God, I need direction. And if you don't know, say, God, I don't know what I need. But I'm trusting you to give me what I need. But ask God right now to draw you close to Him. Now, we do have a great high priest you know, in Isaiah. He's called a wonderful. He's called a counselor. He's called the high priest who can sympathize with us. He's been where we are. So this Christmas season, as you're experiencing the joys, also be willing to enter with God into the sorrows. As you leave today, we'd love to greet you. We have some folks three doors down in the hearth room. We'd love to say hi. If we pray for you, we'd love to do that as well. If you can't prepare to give us some offering boxes on the way out, I just ask that you find God in the midst of your ups and downs. See you next week.